This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. He finds enablers in the judiciary everywhere. One of the few positive things Donald has done is shine a very bright light on the extent to which all of our systems are broken and the ways in which they're weak. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law, the Supreme Court, and suddenly the law of special masters. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the law for Slate. And even though on this show we've spent the summer gorging on great books, we are not blind to the fact that the former president of the United States kept classified documents at his golf club, refused to return them, lied about it, and may or may not have exposed, like, you know, sources and methods, as well as nuclear secrets of allies or enemies, as one does in the summer. Uh, This show returns thus to an old favorite theme, the law of Trump, or does such a thing even exist? Later on in the show, Slate Plus subscribers will delight to the dulcet tones of our own Mark Joseph Stern as he and I review some of the week's lawlessness at Mar-a-Lago, a judicial order from Texas that seemingly implicates HIV drugs, but actually tries to crater the ACA again. And we probe whether reckless judging is in fact contagious. That conversation with Mark can only be accessed by Slate Plus members. And thank you, by the way, for supporting the work that we do here at the magazine. But first, to the main show, which I guess we might just call Law versus Lawless, the Judge Eileen Cannon edition. Our two guests are each experts in what I think of as the law of Trump. Mary Trump is a psychologist and author. Her first book, Too Much and Never Enough, was the most lucid and clear portrait of the former president, her uncle, by the way, that I have ever read. Her recent book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal, is a really phenomenal deep dive into American trauma, history, PTSD, and redemption. Norm Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute. He's been involved in political reform for decades upon decades, particularly campaign finance, election reform, and House and Senate reform. Norm's books include the New York Times and Washington Post bestsellers, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, the Disillusioned, the Desperate, and the Not Yet Deported, with E.J. Dion and Thomas Mann. Both Norm and Mary are part of an amazing secret society that shows up peripatetically on Mary's podcast. We call ourselves the Nerd Avengers, and we show up largely, I think, to ask this timeless question, why isn't Donald Trump in jail right now? This is, in other words, I think, a show about what is law and what is politics, whether there is even a difference anymore and what to do about it. So both Norm and Mary, welcome. I'm so happy to have you both here, but having you both here together is making my brain explode. Welcome, welcome to Amicus. Hi, Dahlia. Hi, Norm. It's so good to be with you, Dahlia. I will say, watching the ceremony at the White House of the unveiling of the Obama portraits with President Biden, recognizing that longstanding tradition had been broken by Donald Trump when he was president. And my reaction was, I just hope that the Trump portrait will be his mugshot. Uh, So, Mary, I I actually quite literally want to start with you where I just started, which is, 
why isn't Donald Trump in jail, Mary? Oh, that is the question of our times. Um, Well, he never has been. I think that is the foundational reason. This is a man who should have been in prison decades ago. He certainly should have been indicted for something. And this is just what happens, I think, when there's no accountability, which leaves the room for these countervailing forces to get momentum and to change the subject. And we see in this most recent ruling by this hack of a judge, Eileen Cannon, she, by postponing what should have happened, she gives room for Donald's enablers and supporters to act as if everything's fine. I mean, if it were that bad, right, then nobody could possibly have made that ruling. Clearly, he must have some right to these documents. And this is the same thing that happens time after time. If it were that bad, then something would have happened already. Wouldn't it have? And I think it just underscores that the real problem is the system, which is you, Dahlia, have said recently is working exactly as it was designed to. But for those of us who have a problem with that, it's incredibly demoralizing. Mary, there's something so profound actually buried in what you just said, which is people look at what Judge Cannon does and say, well, there must be both sides here. There must be two legitimate sides because, after all, a federal judge has just issued a stay. But then Judge Cannon, in her order, says, essentially, people are upset and alarmed, and this seems worrisome, so let's, like, pump the brakes. So in a way, you've got a feedback loop of normalizing, right, where she is relying on the fact that people are horrified to justify stopping this process. People who are horrified are saying, well, if she stops the process, we must be right. So there is an almost perfect circle of reinforcement there. Yeah, absolutely. And then To clarify, the people she and others like her are catering to are those who are inclined to want to get Donald off the hook. And unfortunately, there is still a significant minority of those people in America at large and 100% of elected Republicans specifically are eager for Donald to continue for their various reasons. It suits their purposes to have Donald above the law. Dahlia, let me, I want to follow on that in a couple of ways. What struck me over the course of Trump's life, Donald Trump's life, and Mary's book reflects this, as do others, is it's a lifetime of grifting. And he has managed to, and partly this is the culture of New York, but it's also broader, he's managed to pay off judges and prosecutors to intimidate people, Michael Cohen, the enforcer, and in other ways, And one of the stories that struck me the most, it's a minor part of the grifting, was that he used to buy jewelry at the Bulgari shop in Trump Tower and did this scam of having them certify that it was actually being sent from the Florida store so he wouldn't have to pay sales tax. It got uncovered, was his scheme. He really basically pushed the employees there to do it. They got punished and he didn't. And that's the history of his life. And I think we see with his increasingly hysterical missives on Truth Social and elsewhere that he is now actually frightened that this long-time, lifetime pattern of getting off from his schemes, criminal schemes, may be coming to an end. But 
What we also see with Judge Cannon is that he finds enablers in the judiciary everywhere. And here you have a woman who manifestly does not belong on the bench, who was jammed through days after he lost the election, put in place because she was a longtime member of the Federalist Society and was barely 40, or actually under 40 when she was there, never should have taken this case in the first place. It was the most blatant example of shopping for the right judge that we've seen in a long time. Interestingly, when this first came up, she actually mentioned that asking what, you know, gave us a little bit of hope, the pointed question, why are we here instead of with the magistrate judge? And then not only took the case, but issued this execrable ruling. But it's not likely to stand. And I think the noose is tightening in so many venues in New York, in Georgia, and with this federal case. And we're now seeing a level of criminality that is just shocking beyond even what we might have imagined. I want to come back to you on one point, Norm, and then I do want to ask Mary, because I think Mary knows the sort of life of grifting and somehow untouchableness, uh, that story better than the rest of us. But I do want to say on the structural question, because it does feel, and, and I felt it so acutely this summer, and we've talked about it on Mary's show, but there's this kind of the highs of the net closing and then the lows of something intervening and that sort of sense of inevitability that you're just reflecting and then that sense of it being arrested. But it's always arrested because of anti-democratic structures. And as you just said, somebody tweeted, I think on Thursday night, that the only publication that Judge Cannon listed in her judicial application was an interview she did about her wedding announcement. She had never published an interview. So, like, this is the most shoddily inappropriate person to be deciding major questions of national security. But as you just said, and I just want you to pull on it a bit, Norm, this is a structures problem. We are in thrall to a federal judiciary that can simply leap in. The DOJ has the president dead to rights. He has taken classified documents. They are not his. They belong to the executive branch. He has refused to return them after painstaking efforts for the National Archives to save face, and then lied about all of it. He's likely compromised national security in ways we will never know about, but it's so bad. And a single judge strolls onto the stage, takes it away from both the magistrate judge and the judge in D.C., where this appropriately resides, and then just sticks a fork in the whole thing. And I guess my question for you is, as somebody who's been writing about all the ways in which democracy is thwarted, this kind of rule by juristocracy is crippling. And it is something that I don't think, and I say this as somebody who's been writing about the inviolable juristocracy for a long time, I don't think we're having serious conversations about fixing that structural problem at all. I couldn't agree more. And there was another interesting development along similar lines. Judge Reed O'Connor who infamously had basically ruled that the Affordable Care Act was unconstitutional, just issued a ruling that said that PrEP, so these are the drugs that prevent HIV transmission, cannot be forced as part of the Affordable Care Act's formulary 
for religious reasons, because people think that it's only for homosexuals and homosexuality is immoral and therefore they don't have to prescribe it. And it gets to a larger point that you've made, which is it is insane that a single district court judge can enjoin the entire country in an important action or can rule in the way that Judge O'Connor has. And this is in Congress's purview. And one of the things, you know, we have a lot of discussion about enlarging the court, and we have some discussion about term limits for Supreme Court justices. Nobody has effectively talked about the jurisdiction of the courts, which is totally in, with a very few exceptions, the original jurisdiction given in the Constitution of the Supreme Court. Congress can determine what appellate jurisdiction is. They can, by legislation, say, no, we're not going to let some insane district court judge who is ruling only because of forum shopping by extremists to basically rule over the entire country. And they can take away some of the Supreme Court's jurisdiction as well. We are now in a world where the bias that exists in all of our institutions, an anti-democratic bias, some of it built in, but it was kept in check by the norms in the system, and the norms have disappeared, and now you have a sizable share of the country willing to use these structural anomalies to basically rule over the rest of the country, even though it goes against what the vast majority of Americans want or against what we would view as the rule of law. And this is a crisis point, and I can only hope that we will get a Congress that will be willing to address some of this. And I'll just I'll make one other point while we're on this subject. We know that the Supreme Court is going to rule on one part of this independent state legislature's theory, this obscure, wacko theory, which was first applied to electors. But now it's very possible, maybe even likely, that they're going to apply it to state legislatures and Congress, that in effect, State courts or state constitutions are irrelevant if the state legislature, narrowly defined as that legislature, takes an action. And that action can be unconstitutional. It doesn't matter. But what it ignores, and we've seen this play out multiple times, and there's now a brief in this case that basically says Congress can do nothing about this, ignoring the explicit language of the Constitution. State legislatures can regulate Uh, state elections, except Congress can overrule them. Congress has the ultimate power over the time, manner, and place of federal elections. And if this Supreme Court takes this extreme position, I would say as a Congress, okay, you know, what you're basically saying is no courts, including the Supreme Court, can overrule what Congress does on elections and voting. Therefore, Citizens United Shelby County and all their progeny are no longer in effect because you have no role to overrule what we have done in Congress. I'd like to see a Congress with the guts to do this, but I think the court is pushing such a radical agenda. And we've seen Justice Alito do his kind of victory dance in Rome, basically saying, screw the rest of you, we've got the votes, that we've got a crisis that can only be resolved if you have a Congress with the guts to do something about it. Mary, before we turn to you on trauma, and I 
God, your book is so beautifully written, and I really want people to read it because I think as I read it, I realize that I am in trauma, I think, which was your point. But I do want to stay with Norm's observation because I know it's something that you have been saying time and time and time again. Like, we can't just complain. We have to fix things. Everything needs to be codified. If I had, you know, a Coke for every time you said that, I'd have no teeth left. And I just don't quite understand why there's such an appetite in the media for kind of describing whatever the tragedy du jour was, whatever the win was, the highs, the lows, without having the structural conversation that Norm is suggesting, if we do not have it, we're just going to have a big win-loss column and no democracy left. And I think you've been watching how the media has covered Donald so astutely. Why aren't we sitting around this week talking about how is it possible to forum shop and get a judge who quite literally sticks a fork into the single most important, not just criminal investigation, but national security inquiry in the history of this country? And why are we not all of us talking day and night about the kinds of judicial reforms and jurisdictional reforms that Norm is invoking? All really good questions. I'm I'm glad you still have teeth because that would be, (laughs) don't drink a Coke every time I say that. (laughs) It would be dangerous. Um, Or a glass of bourbon because that uh, that might be more appropriate. That that way madness lies and also solace. Okay, Mary. I think part of it is just a failure to grasp what is actually going on. You don't even have to go that deep, but if you don't feel that it's your job to dig at all, then you miss the red flag that Norm just spoke about, that literally one person can make decisions that affect the entire country. I think back to the, I don't know which district she is, but she's out of Florida, who just lifted the mask mandate on planes, claiming the CDC didn't have jurisdiction over keeping American citizens safe from diseases, which is an interesting take on that. But I think a larger problem is that maybe it's just people who grew up in our generations, but we used to be able to equate media with journalism. And that connection started unraveling, not surprisingly, in the 80s in New York, when Donald was on the front page of at least the New York Post practically every day for God knows how many years, because it sold papers. And the coverage was incredibly superficial. The focus was on whatever myth he was spitting. And there was no willingness or desire to go beyond that or behind it and report on what was really going on. And it's that failure. I think you you could actually say that it's that failure alone that has led us here. The Donald's ability to use the media to capitalize on the completely false portrait that was painted of him first by New York newspapers and then ultimately by Mark Burnett. That's something we're going to be dealing with for a long time, but it's also that coupled with the truth that there are always people smarter and more powerful than Donald who figured out how they can make use of him. Like if it were just Donald, he's not savvy. He has 
specific skills. I mean, he is quite good at manipulating the media. He's very good at finding people weaker than he is to carry his water for him. But if it weren't for people like Mark Burnett or the bankers at Deutsche Bank or Mitch McConnell or Vladimir Putin, I don't think Donald would have gotten as far as he's gotten. And I think that the original sinner in that regard is my grandfather, of course. And it's just how this pattern has repeated over time that I still can't quite grapple with it, to be completely honest with you. But those two things together, the myth about him sells papers and other people in positions of power have figured out how to use him towards their own ends. And I think maybe I would ask both of you, because as Norm says, there's a pretty narrow grifting playbook on how to win all these lawsuits. You just buy judges, you bully weaker opponents, you wear them down with endless delay. I mean, it's a pretty standard, right? As many people have said on this show, I think, including Daniel Goldman, it's a pretty standard mob playbook of how to get through a legal system. But it does raise... And maybe you'll start, Mary, just because your whole book is about privilege, the just inevitable reality that this works really well if you're wealthy and white. In fact, if you're wealthy and white, this playbook is kind of failsafe. And Donald Trump, I think, is the poster boy for you can always hire another lawyer, even if your last 30 lawyers quit or were unpaid. You can hire someone. They will file the motion. They will go on TV. They will lie. In other words... If you are wealthy and privileged and famous, as you say, and if the media is willing to both sides it for you, then you skate. And in a country where nobody else gets to say, oh, my documents are private, I need a special master, or my feelings are hurt, or my reputational interests are so acute that you cannot proceed with the criminal investigation, no one gets that privilege. And so in a sense, I'm trying to pick through whether, in fact, the criminal justice system is just fundamentally broken because there's two tiers of justice, or whether, in fact, Donald Trump has just figured out the golden path through it so that there will never be accountability because somehow his privilege, his power, and the fact that people believe him will always exculpate him. First of all, I think that the system of justice in this country is broken. And one of the few positive things Donald has done is shine a very bright light on the extent to which all of our systems are broken and the ways in which they're weak. And in a sort of flip side of one person can make these egregious decisions that affect everybody, but we've seen in the January 6th committee, along the way, one person held the line. It wasn't the system. It was an individual, whether it's a 23-year-old woman or somebody with more power and experience. So there's that part of it, which I guess we should be grateful for, because the only way to change the system is to reimagine our institutions and figure out how they can work for everybody, which clearly they don't do. And what exemplifies that right now is as soon as we heard that Cannon was appointed by Donald, we knew that we weren't going to get a fair ruling based on the facts. And we didn't. And we had the same thing looking at the 11th circuit. Uh, I think six out of 
I'm not sure how many, 11 or 13 of those judges were appointed by Donald. So we have the same quandary. Are we going to get a fair ruling out of that? And I don't know. <laughs> and that's a very scary state of affairs. And we see it at the state level, too. We'll say, okay, the federal judiciary is broken, perhaps beyond repair right now. So are we going to get justice at the state level? And the answer to that question is, it depends on the state. <laughs> it's going to take a lot of work. And as Norm said, it's going to take a Congress. And I think implied there is a Democratic dominated Congress that is willing to look this in the face and say enough and no more. We have to start from scratch here. But on top of that, of course, is the fact that Donald has honed the skill of using the system to benefit him at the expense of everybody else for a very long time. And you couple that with America's egregious history of failing to hold powerful white men accountable. I mean, if you cannot hold Robert E. Lee accountable, then is it shocking that a century and a few decades later, you're not going to be holding somebody like Donald accountable. No, because people keep getting pardoned or people are allowed to rehabilitate themselves. I'm thinking of Nixon or George W. Bush or Ronald Reagan. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. But what is of most import for the long term is the broken institution itself. So, you know, just to add to that, of course, the Supreme Court, the motto is equal justice under law. I was struck. We know that we have figures out there who are at least as pernicious as Donald, who are smarter and tougher, Ron DeSantis being one of them. He spends millions of Florida taxpayer dollars to do this investigation of voter fraud, finds 20 people who are basically felons who completed their sentences, who are allowed under the law to vote, who were told by election officials and the state that they were eligible to vote, and he frog marches them into jail. They did this believing in good faith that they were casting legitimate votes. Now, in the villages, this upper middle class conclave filled with Trumpists we have multiple examples of direct and blatant voter fraud. People who cast multiple ballots for Trump knowing full well that they were violating the law. Have any of them been frog-marched? No. We know that the first instance of somebody in recent years who was caught casting an illegal ballot, but again did it unknowingly, got a five-year jail sentence and then when we see white people, rich ones, who do this knowingly, they get a slap on the wrist. They get probation and told, gee, you shouldn't do that. Don't do it again. And we look back at drug cases and so many things. It's just maddening to realize how obvious it is that we have two separate systems of justice. And we haven't grappled with it. We haven't done anything about it. And Trump is the poster child for all of this, but Roger Stone. How is Roger Stone not in jail? Obviously, because Trump pardoned him, and he's also used his leverage and wealth to escape. We see this over and over again. And I'm actually quite struck that the rage level in communities of color isn't greater than it is 
given these obvious inequalities, inequities, and disparities. Well, I suspect the rage level is partly dampened by the fact that it's always been thus, right? This is not new. And also because the media doesn't care what the rage level in those communities are. And I was going to ask as a follow-on to what Mary just said, what is fundamentally warping the possibility of equal justice for all money, race, or celebrity? But I think both of you have just answered that question as yes. Uh, it's all. But I do want, Mary, I want to give you a chance because I don't know how you write so powerfully about sort of personal trauma and national trauma and the possibility of healing. That line really has been sitting with me since I read it in your second book. We are in trauma upon trauma upon trauma. We can't get out from under the COVID trauma. We can't get out from under January 6th. I'm still not quite recovered from the Muslim ban, to be honest. How do you move kind of through this and forward when it is increasingly evident that millions and millions of people are just not interested in reconciliation or reparation or repair or in trying to heal, but that in fact, like faced with off-ramp after off-ramp, your president is, in fact, it would seem, uh, selling national security secrets, still double down and say, you know, I would rather be on his side than on the side of Mary Trump. Well, yeah, I think the trauma of origin in, in this context is November 9th, 2016. But yes, then f- faster and faster and faster, it seemed more and more came at us. Muslim ban, putting children in concentration camps after s- kidnapping them, essentially. Charlottesville, on, on and on. And the list is just uh, ridiculously long. And I think... <sighs> The way to deal with it now is actually not a psychologically healthy thing to do, but we have to marshal our resources, and that is to compartmentalize. We can't be thinking about all of this all of the time in order to stay in the fight and stay engaged. I'm not suggesting that we detach either, because that's also bad, but we need to hope that there will be a time when we can unplug, step back, take a break and recover. Because one of the things I write about is that when you are continually being traumatized, you cannot heal from your trauma. Just you can't do that. And unfortunately, that's the case. But the good news is, And this is similar to how Donald uncovered things that's doing us a service, even though what we've learned is horrible. The same thing about Donald's quote-unquote election and what's happened with COVID. People have been revealed to be who they are. And it's good to know not just who your enemy is, but how many of them there are. So again, that can be demoralizing, but at least it's information that we can use. But we also need to understand that the worst thing we can do is give up and concede. And I've seen people doing that since the midterm started, however many months ago. The party in power always loses. That's the conventional wisdom, to which I say, to pretend that we are in normal times is to give away so much ground that it's mind-blowing, that anybody would start from that place. 
There's nothing normal about the times we're living in. There's nothing commonplace about these midterms. These midterms are going to decide whether or not America is going to be a democracy. It's that simple. And I think given those stakes, for those of us who understand them, it is infuriating to see that it's even close because once again, we see the horse race being given preference over actual analysis of what's happening. And it completely diminishes the importance of where we are, what we're facing, and what needs to happen. So I don't think I'm answering your question because it's so complicated and there's no easy answer because the truth of the matter is, and I'm sorry to say this, that things are going to keep getting worse until we can get to a place where they're not, not to be reductive. But, you know, we really need to accept that. And in the meantime, recognize that we have the power. We have the power to change things. I think, Dolly, you said this recently. What's so clarifying about this moment is that there's one weapon and it's in our hands and it's our ability to vote. So we have to hang on to that. And this is another thing I say a lot, and please don't drink a Coke every time I say it. There are more of us than there are of them. We just need to figure out how to mobilize people in a way that completely short circuits the ability of the other side to manipulate the system, to rig the system, to cheat, lie, and steal, which is the only way they can stay in power. Norm, that's such a great segue to where I wanted to land with you, which is one of the reasons I always have sort of Norm headphones in my ears is because I, I think of you as the consummate systems person, you know, like processes and systems. And I think long before any of us cottoned on to the problem, you were talking about systems that profoundly warp democracy and how to fix them. One of the things that I think changed at the end of this Supreme Court term, if I'm reading the zeitgeist, is that a lot of people said, but how could Dobbs have happened if 70% of Americans didn't want it? How could Bruin, the guns case, happen if 70% of Americans want states to be able to enact meaningful gun control? And that you can blame the Supreme Court. But the fact is, if you can't, thank you, Justice Alito, vote that system to be rectified because your vote is increasingly meaningless, it's not just the Supreme Court. It's the Supreme Court lashed to all of the broken political systems that you and Mary have described. And I think a lot of people understand that now. Yes, they can get out and vote in November, but with the flick of the pen, if the independent state legislature doctrine is in fact blessed by the court, it doesn't matter. What do we do <laughs> to short circuit in this very compressed amount of time? Because I agree completely with both of you. I think we're in like sort of Damocles time where the whole thing can end. What are you telling people to get out and do in addition to vote? And I agree, Mary, that's got to be it. And it's got to be by margins that are unassailable. But there's systems work to do, too. And that, I think, is long term and it's boring. But that's the work that I think, in addition to simply voting, that repair work, whether it's gerrymandering or the Electoral Count Act, all of that stuff needs to get fixed. So I want to ask you a very unfair last question. 
which is how do you both lift up, and this goes to Mary's point about the media doesn't care about this stuff, the urgent need for all that systemic repair, and then just very crisply, what systems repair should people be fighting for in addition to going out and voting in November? Sure. You know, one of the things we can reflect back on is the tragedy of Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, who put the filibuster ahead of preserving democracy. The For the People Act, which included a lot of things, including redistricting reform, gerrymandering reform. It's not that independent commissions are perfect. We saw what happened in New York, but it would make a huge difference compared to where we are otherwise. And the way in which districts have been gerrymandered, and it's not just Congress, uh, although that's a big problem, Look at Wisconsin, where you have a majority of voters who vote for Democrats in their assembly, and you get two-thirds Republicans. So we're going to end up with this independent state legislature's theory, if it goes through, with outrageously distorted state legislatures basically imposing the views of an increasingly small minority on the majority. And the illegitimacy of that is just astonishing. So one of the things that we need to do, first of all, is to get a billionaire who can be the equivalent of Peter Thiel or this guy who just gave $1.6 billion to Leonard Leo, who is one of the great villains in American history, who has used it to distort the judiciary to accomplish some of these ends and have a more and more undemocratic system. But we're not going to be able to do this unless we can hold the House and the Senate and expand the Senate by at least a couple of seats. The Senate, I think, is in play because of Dobbs. And it's not just Democrats and all of us need to find the best way to frame this so that Americans can understand what the stakes are. And we need to have a media that points out the utter hypocrisy of Republican candidates who have said over and over that they want personhood amendments, which would mean that a miscarriage could involve a woman charged with manslaughter or an abortion with murder that are now saying, well, no, I mean, we really didn't mean that or scrubbing their websites. We need to hold people to account. But keep in mind that the combination of tribalism, where people just vote blindly for their own tribe, the fact that a, a Lauren Boebert or a Marjorie Taylor Greene could win renomination against extremely conservative people, that a Liz Cheney could lose to an absolute nutcase tells us that's a big problem. But the nature of these districts now and the lawlessness in Ohio, where the legislature basically ignored the court's over and over and ended up with an even more distorted set of districts. Winning the House is an uphill battle. We have got to frame this in a fashion that, as Mary said, we get an overwhelming reaction enough to keep the two chambers. If we don't do that, then we're not going to be able to deal with any of these structural changes. We have to reform the courts dramatically. And I'm afraid we can't do that without enlarging the Supreme Court, but we also need to shift the jurisdictions of the courts, something we talked about earlier. The Senate is a huge problem, and I don't have a great answer for that, although it's got to start with adding D.C. and Puerto Rico as states. Frankly, I would add American Samoa and the U.S. Virgin Islands as well and create at least a little bit more of a balance. The House, beyond redistricting reform, we need to enlarge the body. I'd like to add 150 members, which also would have at least a modest impact at reducing 
the bias in the Electoral College. And we're not going to change that without a constitutional amendment or without a dramatic push for this compact that would at least have states uh, relying on the popular vote. All of those changes, though, are going to be important and necessary. But as you say, this is a short window. If we can't accomplish it this time, there's a piece by Jonathan Weissman in the New York Times that was in yesterday about what would happen in the House if the Republicans win a majority. And the fact is that any people who are in any way reasonable, and there are very few, and those who have spines and backbones, and there are even fewer, they're going to be gone. And it's QAnon conspiracy nuts and all-out Trumpists who are coming in. They are going to basically try and blackmail the Biden administration into dropping all investigations of Donald Trump, or they'll shut down the government or bring us to a default, and they will do those things anyhow. And they will hamstring everything else that's going on. And perhaps, as with decisions like Dobbs, that will push people enough over the edge that we get an even more overwhelming desire to change things. But the last thing we want as a country is to push us into utter chaos and bankruptcy, hoping that will finally wake people up. And that's why the stakes this time are so high, and we need to be sure that we can frame this, get the resources out there to be able to do something about it. And it's not just the House and the Senate this time, it's Secretary of State's positions, it's governors, it's attorneys general, it's state legislatures where you can at least move it to a point where they can't override a veto of a reasonable governor. There has to be a massive mobilization. I don't see it. And tragically, I do not see a press corps that has changed even in the slightest fashion to recognize the imminent threat that we have. They're treating it as business as usual. And in fact, it's getting worse in some quarters rather than better. Norm Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the AEI. He's been involved in political reform for decades. His books, too numerous to mention, include the New York Times and Washington Post bestsellers, One Nation After Trump, A Guide for the Perplexed, The Disillusioned, The Desperate, and The Not Yet Deported. Mary Trump is a psychologist and author. Her most recent book, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal, is an incredibly important deep dive into baked in racism and baked in trauma in American history that must be somehow reckoned with in order to move forward. I just want to say that one of the things the two of you have been for me is a really important locus of the kinds of conversations Norm just said are not always happening in the media. Uh, We can't just entertain. We have to be really, really able to deftly say, this is happening. It's not fun. It's not for clicks. It's occurring under our noses. And I really want to thank both of you for being at the forefront of creating spaces to do just that. So thank you so much for joining me. What a pleasure. Such a pleasure. Thank you both. Thank you, Dahlia. We have uh, come back after a long summer without talking to Mark Joseph Stern in our members-only Slate Plus secret coven of doom. And uh, Mark Joseph Stern, I have to start by just saying I freaking missed you. I know our chemistry is weird and nihilist and depressed, but 
There's no one I missed more this summer. I really missed you too. I missed our coven of doom. I feel like experiencing doom alone is just nowhere near as fun as sharing doom with others. And you're one of my favorite doomy people Thank to share you. it with. So I'm glad to be back. I cannot believe we're staring down the barrel of another Supreme Court term already, but I am ready for it. I feel like here it comes. Here I stand. And let's just get it over with. You don't want me to come back with the fatuous rejoinder. How bad could it really be? Because... <laughs> I'm not going to, in fact, take that bait. So let's start, Mark, by, I mean, the whole summer has been insane. I know our friends who are listening know that, like, things happen, not the least of which involves a former president keeping top secret documents, what, next to the, like, buffet table at Mar-a-Lago and then lying to federal officials about it, but then sort of asserting executive privilege that he doesn't have, and then, I guess, also declassifying classified documents with his mind. Like, a lot of thorny legal issues, to be sure. But one of the strangest turns of all came just this week. In fact, on Monday, when a judge who was appointed by Trump after the November election in 2020 essentially told the Justice Department it couldn't use those boxes and boxes of documents illegally seized because, I guess why? Because people are saying it's bad? Because (laughs) Trump has a, like, privacy interest in the golf balls that are rolling around among the nuclear secrets? What, What the hell? Because it could hurt his feelings, Dahlia. And if we know one thing about criminal trials, it's that federal judges are always very concerned about the feelings of the defendant. And so... And the privacy. And the privacy. So crucial. So crucial. Privacy of defendants is a big part of our federal criminal justice (laughs) system. So what happened here is, you know, there's this investigation already going on, and there's a grand jury in D.C., a federal magistrate judge issued the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago. Trump went down to a different court, handpicked the judge, who he appointed, Judge uh, uh, Cannon, and got her to issue this decision that did two things. First, it appointed a special master to go through all of this material that was seized from Mar-a-Lago and sort out what is allegedly Trump's property, what is allegedly privileged by either attorney-client privilege or executive privilege. And, you know, that is to be determined. The special master appointment process could take weeks, it could take months, it could take years, Years. we could still be talking about this in 2040. But the second thing she did, and I actually think this is worse and more important, is she purported to issue an injunction effectively halting the criminal investigation into Donald Trump. She said to the FBI and the Justice Department, you may not review the documents and the materials that you seized for any criminal investigative purposes. So she just inserted herself into the kind of chain of command here and said, halt, you may not look at this stuff if it's to further your criminal case because everything here has to pause because I say so. And I want to be clear, it's easy to miss this in the coverage, but that is not a power that federal judges have. Federal judges do not have the constitutional authority to simply halt a criminal investigation. And there's all kinds of stuff they can do. They can suppress evidence if it's illegally obtained. They can award damages down the road if civil rights were violated. They can toss out a verdict if they think it's unlawful. But they simply cannot step into the executive branch 
and interfere with a core executive function, which is ensuring that the laws are being enforced by, when necessary, opening and conducting criminal probes into those who are breaking the law. And so this is, I feel like, kind of a turning point for the judicial system. And we've seen some sort of centrists proclaim the same, like uh, Noah Feldman, who has tried his best to retain faith in the judicial system, but says this is sort of a make or break moment. You know, if this order is upheld, it'll be clear that there are Obama judges and Trump judges. I think that we answered that question long ago, but it's really stunning to see the arrogance, the partisanship, the brazen bias, the total lack of compunction that Judge Cannon displayed here when she decided to just take this step that is egregiously unlawful and run interference for the guy who appointed her. It's bad optics, it's terrible law, and it's just not good for anyone who's not named Donald Trump. A couple things. One immediate thought is, you didn't mention this, but I think it's important. She said that the National Security Review could go on. So she's (laughs) at the same time, she's saying we can't have a criminal investigation of this alleged criminal, but by all means, we should figure out if national security has been compromised at the highest levels. And there's just nowhere way to square those two Uh, those two tracks. The other thing that, I don't know that we ever talk about this explicitly, but it's really an interesting problem, and I'm hearing it more and more, is that renegade judging is kind of contagious, and that Mm. if you have a judge who does something utterly lawless, and they know that the court above, in this case, you know, we'll talk about the 11th Circuit and all the ways in which it's it's risky to appeal this, but that there's a way in which it simply emboldens everyone else, including appellate judges, to be equally lawless. And so these every time you have a judge who goes way, way outside the bounds of how we think about doctrine, how we think about judging, how we think about what is proper and right for the judiciary to do— and they do it with impunity, it really does cause other judges to feel that they can do the same. I think that's the best explanation for the rash of lawless judging that we've seen over the last few years, especially under Biden, when we have seen these Trump judges and Trump-aligned judges issue these extraordinary and unprecedented decisions and injunctions that really seize control over the executive branch. I mean, you and I wrote about and talked about the judge in Texas who basically took control of southern border policy for a year, who oversaw high-ranking diplomats' negotiations with Mexican officials to try to reinstate the Remain in Mexico policy, who basically made himself the top diplomat of the United States for these purposes, and only got reversed to the Supreme Court by a 5-4 to four vote. And I think that really illustrates one of the gravest dangers here, which is that these decisions are shifting the Overton window. They are pushing every court to the right. They are emboldening judges on the courts of appeals and justices on the Supreme Court to embrace more and more radical views of what their jobs entail and permit and getting everyone kind of excited and frothing to just push as hard as they possibly can in the Republican direction, in the Trump direction, against 
the Biden administration and everything it is trying to do. So, you know, we heard the term judicial resistance bandied about a lot under Trump whenever a a judge would say issue an injunction against an obviously illegal anti-immigration rule. I think you and I really disliked it at the time. But here we are seeing judges almost step up to Joe Biden's face and tell him, I'm the president now. And I just think that is categorically different from what we've seen before and indeed contagious because it's exciting for judges to do that. They feel powerful. They feel, I'm sure, like a rush of excitement to, to award themselves this power. And other judges in Texas, in red states, in, in the 11th circuits, they're like, we want to get in on that too. Why should they have all the fun? And I think that extends all the way up to the conservative justices on the Supreme Court. Now, I have to stop you, Mark, because you and I co-authored a piece this week actually gently critiquing the hundreds of incredibly smart legal hot takes that were all assessing how bad Judge Cannon's order was. And I think the critique was, I guess I know what it was because I wrote half of it, but I think that (laughs) the theory of the case was we can't just sit here and be like, she doesn't understand what executive privileges even mean. She doesn't give us any guidance what a special master could even do. Like, there's no point in all that critiquing and all of that use of the word lawless over and over to describe what she's done here unless we say, Coda, fix the courts. Because otherwise, you are somehow acceding to being in a system that is lawless. Yeah. As a person who wrote the other half of it, I certainly agree. I think it's kind of funny that, you know, even in this conversation, we're slipping back or I am slipping back into the habit of pointing out all the things that are wrong with the decision when, again, it's like she knows. She's got to understand. She at least has clerks who are smart enough to understand that all of this is absolute nonsense, that what she's doing is not allowed and has never been done in the history of the Republic. And she doesn't care. She just does not give a damn that she is stepping into this extraordinary role of kind of super president. And so I do think that every conversation like this has to be followed up with a reminder that up until the last few decades, Congress was regularly expanding the courts, the lower courts in particular. Right now, the Judicial Conference, which is a totally nonpartisan kind of policy arm of the federal judiciary that makes policy recommendations, the Judicial Conference is begging Congress to add more seats to the lower courts, saying, please, you know, the dockets of so many lower court judges are full and these delays are lasting for years because there are too many cases. There are way more people in this country, way more people litigating stuff in this country than there were 10, 20, 30 years ago. There just aren't enough judges to meet the moment. And of course, creating more seats, even only in the lower courts, also has the salutary effect of diluting the influence of these nihilistic far-right Trump judges, of creating some incentives for judges to not go all the way out on a limb and to instead follow the law because they are afraid that they will be brutally and embarrassingly reversed by the higher court because it's not filled 
filled with lunatics like them. So yeah, I mean, you know, we, we can touch the hot stove of Supreme Court expansion if we want, but I don't think we even have to get there to offer up a real solution here. Putting smart, normal people with integrity and principles on the bench, adding seats to ensure that they balance out the crazy Trump judges, that in itself would go a long way towards solving this problem. And pointing out all the flaws in Cannon's decision doesn't do anything to solve the problem. Yeah, I mean, I know we took some heat from a lot of folks who don't like being criticized, but I guess it just has the sense of the house is on fire and hearing about like, oh, the backsplash is not quite right. Like the (laughs) house is freaking on fire. And if you're not doing something systemic and immediate to fix the problem, then treating it as though it is in fact a legal opinion that has legal force and is legally well-reasoned is its own kind of form of insult, right? Because nobody thinks this is serious. This was not a serious effort. So I guess that takes us, speaking of unserious efforts, to Moore versus Harper. And this is the independent state legislature theory case that is barreling upon us. We have talked about it a bunch of times. It's essentially this crackpot theory that has no actual meaningful support, but that would certainly give state legislatures utterly unreviewable powers to do what they want in elections. We won't belabor it here, but This was the week when the crazy came pouring through the cracks because the amicus briefs came in. Do you want to talk about some of your favorite briefs in Moore v. Harper? Should we, should we talk about the, the brief that was basically ghostwritten by Leonard Leo and his Honest Elections Project? Uh, the man who now has $1.6 billion, billion to spend billion. in dark money on federal judicial vacancies and state court races. And we know he is very focused on these state court races because stacking these courts with crazy elected Republicans is a great way to maintain control of a state judiciary, even when Democrats win, say, a governorship or a state legislature. Um, you know, we could spend all day talking about these crazy briefs. The one point I want to make is that these briefs illustrate just how radical and terrifying the theory here is in a way that I find kind of helpful because we are seeing scholars and advocates on the other side who are promoting this theory try to kind of gaslight us and say, hey, look, this is no big deal. If state legislatures have unreviewable authority over election law, the sky's not going to fall. They're just going to have control over the rules. They're going to draw the maps. They're going to be deciding how and when the people can vote. But that's not a big deal because that's how it happened throughout most of American history. And, you know, it's the most democratic branch. They respond to the people, yada, yada, yada. That's what they say. These briefs say, actually, we want the sky to fall. We want state legislatures to have absolute unreviewable authority because we want to draw crazy gerrymanders. We want to engage in rank voting suppression. We might even want to override the will of the people in presidential elections and appoint our own alternate electors to the Electoral College. And it's none of your business, state courts. It is absolutely not for you to decide how we manage elections. And I guess I'm glad the crazy there is out in the 
open because now every time somebody who wants to retain their respectability while promoting this crackpot theory and they try to gaslight us by saying, oh, it's no big deal. It's not really going to lead to anything bad. We can just throw these amicus briefs in their faces and say, why don't you talk to your allies about this? Because they have very different ideas and plans for what they want to do with this newfound power. And do you want to talk for a quick second about the amicus brief that comes in from the chief justices of every state Supreme Court? This is an extraordinary brief, and it's so hard to be optimistic about this U.S. Supreme Court, but I can see... Brett Kavanaugh reading this and actually maybe kind of having second thoughts about adopting this theory. Probably not. I'm being too optimistic. But this is a brief that was filed by the Conference of Chief Justices, which, as you said, represents all 50 states' chief justices. And they tell the Supreme Court, look, you are on the verge of just inflicting a radical and revolutionary change to the way that our state government works. You are on the brink of telling states that they are not allowed to structure their governments in certain ways that give state executive officers and state judiciaries some power over election rules. You are going to interfere with a system that we ourselves, the people of the states, have set up to ensure that elections run in accordance with the will of the people. And that is an egregious violation of the federal principles that you purport to espouse. And again, who knows what effect this will have, but I do think this is a really important aspect of this case to note that the same conservatives who are usually screaming about states' rights and screaming about federalism and empowering the people and getting federal courts out of it, out of all these controversies, they now want to override the will of the people, override the will of the states, rearrange state legislatures, and empower federal judges to micromanage every single election election dispute that arises for the rest of our lives. And so I found the brief very clarifying. And it's the one that I will be personally sort of like waving around when these arguments are heard and screaming at the top of my lungs about because I think it has the most potential to persuade the justices on the Supreme Court that this case is a recipe for chaos and really a kind of assault on fundamental aspects of state sovereignty. I shudder to end on (laughs) having just done the existential meltdown that is the independent state legislature theory. I'm going to end on an even more, I think, worrisome and depressing note and ask you to just walk us through a, a really deeply troubling decision that came in on Wednesday from a Texas judge, uh, Reed O'Connor, that is horrifying in some ways, but more horrifying in other ways that got less air. So can you just walk (laughs) us through what Judge O'Connor did? Yes. So he did a couple things. And remember, this is the guy who tried to destroy the Affordable Care Act in 2018, who got reversed at the Supreme Court 7-2. So even I, a big fan of making worst case scenario predictions and catastrophizing, even I think there's some hope that this ruling will not stand up on appeal. But he ruled in favor of a group of employers who do not want to allow their workers to access HIV-preventing medicine through their insurance plans. So under Trump, 
in the Trump administration, this federal mandate was issued that said insurance plans have to cover PrEP, which is a drug that is like 99% effective at preventing HIV transmission. And these religious employers said, no, we don't want to do it because we think that PrEP encourages and facilitates gay sex, which we believe to be immoral. And of course, they took their case to Reed O'Connor. Of course, Reed O'Connor sided with them. We could spend the next five hours picking apart his decision. But there's just one aspect of it that I want to focus on, which is this idea that this case is just a direct analogy to Hobby Lobby. We all remember Hobby Lobby, where the court said employers could refuse to provide contraceptive coverage through their plans. Terrible decision. In in this case, Reed O'Connor says, look, it's the same thing. You know, these people don't want to facilitate what they consider to be sin. But I would like to point out what I think is a crucial difference, okay? In Hobby Lobby, the employers said, we think these contraceptives are abortifacients. They weren't, but leave that aside. We think that these contraceptives are destroying embryos, and that is sinful, and so we refuse to cover them because it burdens our religion. Make of that what you will. The court accepted it. But here, the employers do not object to the way PrEP works, right? The employers are not saying, oh, PrEP blocks the enzyme that HIV needs to replicate. And so that enzyme blocking action is really offensive to our religious beliefs. They are going a step, a rather attenuated step beyond that and saying this has an effect that then allows patients to engage in conduct that we disagree with and that we find sinful. And I think those are categorically different claims than what we saw in Hobby Lobby. And just to give you an example, if that's true, does that mean that an employer could exclude heart medication from their insurance plan because it facilitates slothfulness by letting patients avoid exercise? Does it mean that an employer could exclude cholesterol medication because they believe it facilitates gluttony by letting patients eat unhealthy foods? Does it mean that an employer could refuse to cover double bypass surgery because if their workers knew that they had that option, if they have a heart attack, they could just binge on cake and sit in front of the TV all day? Gluttony and slothfulness are two of the seven deadly sins. These could be real religious claims that people bring. And so I actually think, and again, I don't know why I'm feeling even marginally optimistic today, but I think that a reasonable judge could draw a very firm line between covering drugs whose actual mechanism is offensive to them and covering drugs that in theory lead to some kind of behavior down the road that they disagree with. That is a distinction Reed O'Connor refused to draw. It's one that I think should dictate the outcome of this case. And do you want to take a beat to clear your pipes? Because one of the things that you really got mad about on Twitter this week was the implication by Judge Reed and others that the only people who use PrEP are gay men who want to engage in gay sex. And I think your point is that massively underrepresents who needs to use this drug. Uh, thank you. I, yes, I would like to. First I of all, think you, need you know, to. even if that were true, it should not matter. Obviously, protecting gay and bisexual men from HIV, which is still in many cases a lethal virus, is an important and crucial goal morally and ethically. And in my view, religiously, but, you know, I'm, I'm not one of these plaintiffs in this case. It, it is also used by black women in America who are unfortunately disproportionately affected by HIV. Black women have a 15 times higher rate of HIV infection than white women 
women in this country. One in five new HIV infections in this country is a cisgender female patient. The CDC is currently spending tens of millions of dollars on campaigns to promote PrEP uptake among Black women in Black communities because they are, sadly, again, really heavily burdened by this virus. And so the line that Reed O'Connor accepts in this decision and that conservatives were banding about on Twitter, this idea that this is just for promiscuous gay men that nobody else would need PrEP, it's offensively wrong. It is offensive. It is a lie. It's just medically false. And I think it promotes this kind of misinformation that is is preventing a lot of people who need PrEP, who should be on PrEP, from taking it and protecting themselves against HIV. But Mark, it gets worse. (laughs) It gets worse. It gets worse. It gets worse because Reed O'Connor goes a step beyond that. And he says, actually, you know what? It's not just the PrEP mandate that's illegal here. I think that the entire federal infrastructure that imposes these regulations on insurance companies to cover preventive care, I think that's illegal because the agency that makes these recommendations, which is a group of unpaid volunteer experts who meet a couple of times a year for two days, that these people are in fact officers of the United States on par with cabinet secretaries who must be nominated by the president and confirmed by the Senate. And because they aren't, this expert body that makes these recommendations is illegal. And he opens the door to striking down the entire agency and all of its work, which would mean that insurance companies are free from covering any kind of preventive care, including, just briefly, cervical cancer screenings, colorectal cancer screenings, HIV tests, domestic violence screenings, medication for heart disease, breast cancer screenings, breast cancer treatment. The list goes on. All of those things are mandated by this agency that Reed O'Connor now says is illegal. So I think that as horrifying and homophobic as his opinion on PrEP is, the bigger picture here is that he is trying again to destroy the Affordable Care Act. And it's just a backdoor into the same garbage he has been pulling for almost his entire career. Maybe the through line, Mark, is that we started this conversation by saying the recklessness and lawlessness feels like it's contagious. And it does seem as though the nihilism is also contagious. I mean, it's just simple reaching out to just dismantle government entities because government sucks. Feels like it's also something that has been greenlit from the very, very highest court in the land all on down. I think you used the word moderately optimistic. So folks, set your benchmark there. (laughs) Whatever that... Uh, It may have been marginally optimistic, but I'll buy into moderately. I'll put my chips on that. Uh, So that's it. This is Mark being (laughs) marginally slash moderately optimistic. And my friends, it only goes up from here. So Mark Joseph Stern... (laughs) Covers the courts, the law, states, voting, all the things at Slate.com. And I have missed him, and it is wonderful, Mark, to have you back. It's going to be quite a term, and it's coming soon, and we will talk about it in the next couple of weeks. Thank you for being here. We will have no choice but to talk about it, and I look forward to doing it with you. Nihilism with a side of crazy. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so very much for listening in. And thank you always for your letters and your questions. You can keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or you can always find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. 
Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio, and Ben Richmond is Senior Director of Operations for Podcasts at Slate. We will be back with another episode in two short weeks. And until then, do take good care.